this episode of La Segunda Derivada, the podcast of the School of Engineering of UC Chile begins a season with guests who will talk with Agustín Covarrubias about the current and future challenges of our society, a podcast that will address the role of science and technology in solving the most urgent problems, both locally and globally. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Second Derivative, the official podcast of the UC Chile School of Engineering. In this episode, we'll repeat something we did some episodes ago by having a podcast in English. This time, we'll interview Andrea Ravasio, assistant professor in the Biological and Medical Engineering Institute here at the School of Engineering. Dr. Ravasio is currently the director of the Laboratory for Mechanobiology of Transforming Systems and Mechanobiology of Development Project. He also holds a PhD in Human Physiology from the University of Innsbruck and a Master in Biology from the University of Milan. He has worked in leading research institutes in Italy, Austria and Singapore, including recent work as part of the Singapore-MIT Alliance for Research and Technology. Andrea's research is mostly focused on mechanobiology, a field that lies in the intersection between biology, physics and engineering, trying to understand the complex interactions between physical forces and cells. This has important implications not only to understanding fundamental processes in biology, but also diseases such as cancer. And he also teaches an innovative course on the mechanobiology of diseases. Welcome, Professor. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to this conversation. I look forward to it too. So, just to get started, one of the first things I notice about your profile is that you're a biologist by training, working in the cutting edge of engineering, physics and medicine. How did you get into these lines of research? What got your eye about mechanobiology? Oh, mechanobiology wasn't even a, a discipline when I studied. Uh, it is uh, very recent, uh, maybe the last uh, 15, 20 years at most, uh, and unfortunately I'm older than that. Uh, so when I started, uh, when, I, when, I, when I had to the, when, finishing my secondary school, uh, I didn't know what to choose, uh, physics or biology. So what I did, uh, I just took a train with my brother and went for a travel uh, around Europe. And when I came back, I decided to go for what I thought was more difficult, so biology. <laughs> But I always had an interest in, in the physical aspects of biology. So I kind of self-taught myself uh, during the undergraduate study as much physics as I could. And then when I, when I did my master and PhD, then I chose physiology, which is the most physical of the biological sciences. And uh, then during the PhD, I actually did it in, uh, in, a, in a lab that was working on biophysics, particularly lung biophysics and membrane biophysics. So it looks like you always had a knack for physics, including yeah. <laughs> physics in your biology studies. And biology. <laughs> That's really yeah. interesting. And then it came also the interest for medicine, because uh, the lab where I was working, the biophysical lab of, where I did my PhD, was in the faculty of, was a medical university. So we, are, we were always trying to find uh, ways uh, to apply what we did uh, for, for the larger uh, benefit of the society, like, um, like uh, developing essays. Uh, so I developed an essay during my, my undergraduate, uh, like a side project uh, to screen for surfactant function, which is what, what allows people to, to breathe effectively. So when you started all of your undergraduate studies, do you think you would arrive at something like this? 
Oh yeah, it was my childhood dream. <laughs> yes. Was it really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to say like so when I started, uh, when when I was a kid, I always dream of being a scientist. So for me, it's not even a job. This one, it's just something I do with passion. And did you imagine you will travel the world doing it? It was my other my other passion because I'm Italian. But originally I was born in Africa, so I always had it in me to, to travel as much as possible. And yes, so that, that made me some kind of scientific gypsy. <laughs> never settled down anywhere, but just uh, try to find the next challenge. I love that. Um, Cheers. I think maybe the, the scientific spirit has much alike with travelers in general. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree, yeah. Looking for the next frontier. <laughs> yes. It may be in science, it may be in the actual world, but yes, we're always looking for the next frontier. Um, so, moving on to your research more generally, um, transdisciplinary fields are often hard to define, but what do you think are the core questions or approaches that underlie mechanobiology? Yeah, I don't know, if, uh, there is this, uh, this famous uh, story, I think it's an Indian tale, huh? where um, uh, it tells of uh, these many people that are blindfolded uh, and each one of them is touching a different part of an elephant. And the one that is touching the, the trunk thinks it's a tree. The one that is touching the tail thinks that is a, a sweep uh, and, and so on. And the one that is next to the, to the ear thinks that is a fan. So this is telling that uh, one unique approach is never sufficient uh, to understand the complexity of a system like the biologic, biology is. Uh, so that's, that's why I always like to, to work at the interface uh, between the different disciplines. Also another motivating factor for me is uh, not being limited, but what are the, the, the tools that we have at hand. So just like to give you a little bit of an historic view on biology. So it started off most, mostly like a branch of chemistry. So the type of technology that were developed for chemistry have been applied to study biological systems. And this has continued until very recent. And biophysics has always been some kind of a unique branch in the, in the, in the biology world. So this has been very limiting because at the moment what the type of discoveries that we are making are mostly based on the chemistry of a biological system. So the cell is often seen like a chemical factory and all the mechanics all the important uh, physical cues uh, that the cell has to, uh, which are important for, for a number of reasons. Maybe we'll go into more of my research on development and, and, and cancer later. But they're very important for cellular function. And they actually determine what, what cells do. Uh, so the, 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 the genetic code is determined what the cell is. But then the mechanics, the ability of the cell to interact with this physical world determines what uh, the, the cells can actually do in, uh, in practice. So it's interesting because thinking historically, um, the convergence between chemistry and biology was an important uh, turning point for biology. It changed the way we looked at cells and living organisms and it allowed us to use the tools of science to understand the lower level mechanisms that make cells work. In the same way, I think physics, as a more recent uh, joining approach to understanding mm -hmm. biology, seems to have been... Physics and engineering. 
physics and engineering seems to be yeah. building this new turning point for biology for Correct. understanding aspects that we may have not considered before. Correct, yeah. No, that's exactly the point. So in, in my lab, what we, 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 we do develop our own methods to study the, the biological question that we have. So in that sense, we are not limited by the tools because we make our own tools. And one of the cutting-edge technologies that we use is microfabrication which originally was developed uh, for computer science to build uh, transistors uh, and, and, um, and processors. Uh, we use the same type of technology to build microfabricated devices. Uh, they are micro, so they are in the same length scale of one cell or one molecule. And so using those ones, we can actually interrogate uh, how this, uh, this, uh, this unit work as a uh, functional unit uh, that, that uh, develop the biological world basically. So, so microfabrication as I understand it is this uh, very precise manufacturing process that allows to build ar um, devices or, or microarchitectures. Uh, Correct. So in a way... For, for instance I can give you just a very easy example. We can build a, a, a micro scale um, uh, spring that deforms when the cells are pulling on it. So we can measure the forces exerted by one cell, like a, a myocardial cell. So this has been used, been implemented by some colleagues in the US. Christopher Chen was a pioneer there to develop high throughput screening for drugs that can, can effectively cure some, some diseases in, in art defects, for instance. That's really interesting. So do you think maybe the emergence of these tools have opened new frontiers of research? And was that recent when these kinds of uh, tools appeared? Yeah, that has, been pioneered, uh, that has been pioneered by Professor Waterman, uh, not Waterman, sorry, Whitesides, in, um, in the MIT and Harvard. And uh, yeah, he was a material scientist working on... Uh, on um, on the, on the uh, development of this type of technologies for engineering uh, uh, approaches, op approaches of or engineering technologies. And then he discovered that one of the material that, uh, that were commonly used as an insulant uh, is called uh, uh, PDMS, polydimethylsiloxane, is also biocompatible. So then he started to, to use these microfabrication, microfabricated devices uh, as a mold to then mold cast uh, uh, these type of devices on which then you can grow cells. So biocompatible, so you're talking about taking this material and place it in an, in an organism? Could, you, yeah, you can effectively. Um, so this uh, same, uh, if, if the, the most widely used application for this PDMS uh, in, in the real world case scenario is uh, for contact lenses because it's not only biocompatible but it's also completely transparent uh, to oxygen so it just allows uh, before uh, the contact lenses were also made of glass, which you can imagine you have just a glass attached to the to the to the lens, to the eye. Yeah, that as, sounds as, actually dangerous. It is dangerous, and also it's um, so the, the glass has no permeability. So the cells were dying because we, they were af as, asphyxiating them. Instead, now they make them of this soft gel and uh, perfectly transparent and uh, biocompatible. I, I never oxygen. thought about it, but. Uh, while hearing you talk about it, yeah, I mean, when, when you make contact lenses, you probably need to worry about how the cells underneath are actually working. And, and if there's no permeability, there's no interface to the okay. environment, 
they'll probably start to die. Yes, 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 correct, correct. And yes, so other, other type of applications. So uh, one of the things that we are mostly most, most excited about is uh, the, the creation of biomimetic uh, environments. Why that? So uh, at the moment, uh, there is this dichotomy between uh, the uh, basic science and the clinical applied science. Basic science is run, is run on biological model like cells uh, or insects uh, or embryos uh, extracted from, from frogs or whatever other animal. And instead, uh, clinical research is done on animals, right? mice uh, going up to, to, to also monkeys. What we do, we bridge these two worlds. And, um, and so we create uh, in vitro systems, uh, systems that we can manipulate in the lab, where we can grow cells and make them uh, behave like, as if they were in the, in the real body. So on one way, we also solve the ethical problem of intensive uh, uh, animal, animal usage in, in, and un, sometimes unethical usage of, uh, of animal models. And on the other end, we provide a system that, uh, because it mimics the in vivo conditions, but uh, it, it can be used in laboratory settings, we, can, we provide a system where we can experiment on, uh, on, on, on the cells and have the accuracy of visualizing the cells with the high precision tools that we have nowadays, like super resolution microscopes, where we can, uh, we can look at the forces of the cell, uh, we can look at the localization of the, cell, of the molecule in, within a cell with the, with the, with the accuracy of, uh, of nanometers, which is, uh, which is unprecedented. So it seems like um, a good part of your research is not just inquiry by itself, but also developing novel approaches uh, to allow you to just begin to start the inquiry. So is that really part of the work? Do you spend a good part in engineering the research, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. So my lab, we do three things. The first one is investigate basic science, so to understand the principle by which a biological system works. The second, which is very important, is development of this type of technologies. And the third, which is uh, what is uh, what we are entering now, is to develop uh, uh, screening systems uh, or diagnostic tools uh, or manufacturing tools uh, to create the next generation type of therapies, uh, which take into account uh, also what is the mechanic of the system. Like I said before, so at the moment I'm writing a grant uh, on CAR T cells. CAR T cells are the frontier to cure cancer. So they are, they, you take T cells, which are cells from your, the body of the patient, which naturally are trained to kill cancer cells. They just don't do it very effectively. So what, uh, what, um, what has been done in the past year was to increase their e efficiency by transfecting it, by putting uh, a molecule inside these cells that makes them to recognize uh, this, the cancer cells better. But the problem of that is that uh, sometimes they overshoot. So at the moment there is only a, a handful of therapies that are approved based on these technologies and they are all uh, targeting blood cancers and they can be used only in young relatively healthy people. So uh, people that uh, besides having a tumor, then they don't have uh, other major complications. 
Why? Because uh, if, you, if you put these cells and they're overactive, uh, then they cause this type of cytokine storms. Uh, like, like most of the patients of, um, of COVID were dying because of cytokine storms. So it's an overreaction of the immune system. And, um, and so our project, uh, what we try to do is to, is to increase the mechanical specificity of the recognition of the effector cells towards the, the target cells, so the, tar the cancer cell. Why that? Because it, it appears uh, that when uh, uh, you put these molecules inside these cells, uh, then uh, the cells tend to lose uh, their ability to mechanically interact uh, uh, with the cancer cell. So they're just interacting with the cancer cell in a chemical way. And uh, so our idea is to try to recover the mechanical recognition of the target cells. Yeah. So, so this is really interesting. Uh, if I understood it correctly, cancer cells, uh, I mean T cells, are uh, naturally fight cancer cells. And some treatment approaches have tried to enhance the ability of the T cell to uh, actively combat cancer cells. But the problem is uh, they rely on chemical signaling alone. And, and you have found that mechanical uh, processes that, in, that govern the interactions between the T-cells and the cancer cells are actually really important to, to making the treatment more safe and effective. Correct, correct, yes. Because what, how these cells, when the cells, when these T-cells recognize a cancer cell or try to recognize a cancer cell, they first engage chemically. So they have surface receptor that interact with surface receptor of the target. And if that is recognized as a cancer cell, then they, they just put there a lot of uh, molecules that will just, uh, just make holes in the membrane of the cancer cells and like this, they're gonna kill it. But uh, naturally what they do, they, they will tend to take all these molecules and aggregate them mechanically in a, in a confined space. And if they manage to do that, then they will exactly interact in that, in that spot. When you overexpress this receptor, which is what CAR T cells are, when you overexpress this receptor, then they are everywhere in the cell. And so then the cell bypasses this aggregation step. Okay, so, so basically, they, because there are so many, then they can react everywhere. And, and in that case, then they're losing also the ability to recognize uh, if that is uh, effectively a cancer cell, uh, because, because there are also a number of uh, downstream steps uh, that, that the cells need to check to confirm. Is that a real kill or is that a, a miss, uh, miss uh, like friendly fire, let's say. And this, this recognition requires uh, the mechanics. Wow. So I, th I think that's actually a, a thing that has happened uh, many times in the, in the course of like medical treatments in the sense that once uh, certain um, biological systems are understood better, treatments tend to uh, approach the, the, the system in a more holistic manner. And th that sounds really abstract and, and stuff, but when you're talking about pharmaceutical treatments, by example, Think about all the different ways cells can interact between each other actually matters a lot because otherwise we are only emulating part of the behavior and the results are suboptimal as you've described. Yeah, yeah perfectly said. I need to put a, a to, to just give a caveat here, which is that um, so I'm, I'm overly simplifying some of the steps. Uh, so for, for, for the, for the uh, communication purpose, uh, I'm skipping some of the details on, on the thing. Of course, things are way mo more complicated uh, as normally they are when you're approaching a, a system like biological system and especially a system like cancer where, where things are very, very complex. Uh, 
But then another, another major issue of this type of therapies, uh, which brings back to our technological effort, is that uh, they are very, very expensive because the manufacturing of these cells, uh, it is intrinsically expensive because uh, you need to take cells uh, from the body of the patient, uh, expand them using a very, very expensive reagent, uh, and, and you need to expand them to have millions of cells before being able to re-put them back in the patient after they, you have increased their efficacy. And uh, so the idea is, um, is also to develop uh, manufacturing systems that do not require so much of these uh, expensive reagents so that you can somehow democratize a little bit more these therapies, bring them to the bedside of, uh, of every hospital in the world, not only in, uh, in rich people hospitals. That, that's impressive. So how does that actually look like? You talk about the, the traditional approach, which is taking cells out of the patient, treating them with chemical reagents and then putting them back. So would this work the same way or would you alter something? The idea, the overall idea is that uh, if you need fewer cells to do the same type of, uh, of, uh, of work, and, and these cells are also trained to better recognize uh, the, 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 the actual target, then all the chain will just shrink. Instead of having to expand them to millions, maybe you need only a thousand or hundreds of cells. And getting costs and time in the process. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that really sounds awesome. But I have questions. <laughs> when, when you arrive at the lab, how does your research actually look like? What, what are the kind oh. of things you're doing during the day? Yes. Oh, my research now is... Uh, it's exciting on the intellectual point of view, but boring on the practical one. I, I just look back at the time I was a student or a postdoc, and those were the fun times uh, where I could go to the lab uh, and, and actually get my hands uh, on, on the thing, and that was, was where it, it was most exciting. Now my days uh, are mostly writing paper, writing grants, uh, answer emails, uh, deal with bureaucracy. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I think that uh, so at the moment, the most exciting thing is to allow my students uh, to be successful. Uh, that is what, uh, what uh, allow my students to be successful and how they can be successful is uh, if they start their own company based on the type of technology they can develop, uh, if they publish um, uh, high impact factor papers. Uh, so see them, see them happy makes me also happy. Um, yeah, um, not sure if you want me to tell you when, what was, uh, an exciting moment of when I was actually working in the lab, uh, but um, I'm actually really interested in that. <laughs> uh, no, I yeah, there are, there are few moments that are these uh, true eureka moments, uh, which are which are yeah, what 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 tricks you in being a scientist uh, because overall uh, science is uh, a resilience job uh, in trying to to sustain one failure after the other until you reach this Eureka moment, uh, which just is, uh, is, I think it is as close as possible to this explorer when they find, I don't know, the, the Temple of Doom or, or things like that. And uh, so for me, one, probably the first Eureka moment was, uh, we have been running this experiment uh, uh, on lung surfactant when I was a PhD student. We, we run this type of experiment over and over and over. But uh, due to technical limitation, uh, we always did this type of experiments uh, at room temperature. Then one day I just decided to spend a little bit of time in 
developing a, a little a little device so that we can put this uh, the same system on the microscope like we always did but under control condition so I could change the temperature and I put it on uh, 37 degrees and instead of seeing uh, this type of nice uh, complex uh, two-dimensional structure I've seen them emerge in three dimension and I did not know why but I was sure that I was the first one to see in the world <laughs> and, uh, and and so you had this this fulfillment of uh, of being an exp a real explorer yeah, I mean, that's, that's a common narrative that many scientists share. Uh, some people think about science of things like uh, this really exciting uh, one eureka moment after the other uh, kind of thing, when actually, yeah, it's, it's for the long haul. You have to be really invested in what you do just to have maybe uh, one in a few years eureka moments yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then you always see the, your your professor like being this guy that uh, that knows everything. But the the type of student that we mostly appreciate are those ones that we learn from. Those ones that bring us uh, their eureka moment. So this is what what I was referring before to see them happy, see them that they are successful, that they work hard, and they come up with their own eureka moment. Uh, plus the the deliverables, uh, which are the patents, the publication, and so on. So this is this is what satisfied my day to day work nowadays. Um, yeah, I imagine that's really gratifying. I mean, all of this work put into empowering students to, to continue these kinds of research and taking to a new level and, and, and effectively seeing that work. Um, okay, so in this podcast, we regularly talk about open questions that appear in different disciplines. Maybe some of the stuff that makes scientists curious about what's the frontier, what's unknown. In your opinion, what are the biggest or maybe most interesting mysteries you've come across in your research? What areas are unexplored? Oh, um, everything we do is rather new. So um, I, I feel, I feel uh, quite lucky to have stepped into this line of research because uh, it is fresh, new, out-of-the-box uh, uh, new discipline. So we are actually rediscovering a lot of old... Uh, Old, um, old rules, but now we look at them through the uh, magnifying lens of, uh, of the, their mechanics. So what was considered to be mostly a biological process, uh, now we rediscover a lot of them to have also a lot of mechanical basis, multiscalar. So what are the, what are the frontiers in mechanobiology? I would think that uh, a lot of people are actually investing time uh, in investigating the immune system because of uh, the type of um, the type of uh, output that we have, uh, cancer. So it's moving towards more the biomedical uh, type of world. So it's coming out of his uh, early year of niche uh, type of cool science, uh, and now he's getting into the real world. So as you see, then what 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 we are actually doing in uh, in my lab uh, is in line with uh, with what uh, uh, the world of mechanobiology is going towards. Uh, so we are we are developing novel technologies uh, that can be useful for for biomedical investigation and also biomedical treatments. Uh, and we are de we are developing. Uh, we didn't explore a lot there. So what is our what are our basic questions? Uh, but I think that is a little bit too specialized for this type of audience. Uh, and um, and then we are trying to enter the world uh, where 
we can actually make an impact uh, for the for the people that uh, that are really need uh, for novel therapies. So it was surprising to hear you talk about this um, mechanistic and, and and physical aspects of cellular biology. So then there's really important interactions that maybe we haven't considered before, and that suddenly have all of these really important implications to the biomedical community. By example, so I took cellular biology off the cell, which is actually an introductory course, of course, but we never heard of physical processes. It was all chemical signaling. So do you see this changing uh, anytime soon? Oh, um, yeah, yes. So it, our, the, the knowledge of mechanobiology is slowly entering or creeping into the textbooks. Uh. So now the, the Alberts, which is the, the book where everybody studies cell biology, is taking into account some of the mechanobiology perspective. So yes, yes, I think that soon we'll see more students being studying the mechanics of, of the cells and not only the bio, biochemical regulations of that. Okay, so I'm extremely interested about all of the things you're working on. Um, it seems like for a field that, I mean, it's really recent in, in its emergence, at the very least in the scale of biological history, you're doing some really intense stuff in very in very short time periods. Yeah, yeah, and I have to say that uh, Chile has been quite gracious to me in this sense, uh, because uh, first of all, I'm enjoying a nice country, and second of all, I've been uh, been lucky enough to win several grants. Uh, so now now my lab is fully equipped, uh, and we have a lot of resources to actually do cutting edge investigations. So we are competing. Uh, or better, we are collaborating uh, with, the, with the top uh, groups in the world, uh, big universities. Uh, we don't shy down to anybody in terms of uh, our capabilities, what we can do actually here in Chile. I have to say that I also enjoyed a lot being uh, a pioneer. <laughs> so because uh, coming to the country or in the continent where the, this field is not developed, mechanobiology now is mostly done in, in the hotspots. Uh, so in Singapore, there is a mechanobiology institute. Uh, in, uh, in the MIT, in the big university in Europe, uh, you have people working on mechanobiology. Not many people in South America are working on mechanobiology, and uh, so I could count a handful of people. And uh, definitely we have been pioneering this science in, uh, in Chile, which brings its advantages. I'm, I'm really excited to know that, that we're actually working on that front and we're actually uh, giving it a fighting chance in the international scale, not just the national global scale. I mean, th this is uh, a stuff that's really on the cutting edge of research, and it's exciting to see it around. Cheers, thank you. Well, so that's about it. Uh, thank you really, Andrea, for coming today. I mean, we had a great time, and I'm really interested to keep learning about this stuff. Uh, it's definitely not, uh, it, it definitely hasn't ended for me. So, yes. Yeah, thanks a lot to you for the invitation. It has been great. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you. And for the audience, um, keep watch of the next episodes. We'll be releasing a different type of podcast very soon, a more narrative approach to podcasting, and also much interviews. So, uh, activate updates on your favorite podcast stuff. Thank you. Nos vemos en el próximo podcast, donde continuaremos abordando cómo desde la ingeniería podemos aportar al desarrollo de los países.